Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. This episode, we are going to visit in on Frederick Nietzsche and his writing and philosophy of the tragic age of the Greeks. He says that whenever there is a very healthy culture, that philosophy was able to manifest itself as helpful, redeeming, or prophylactic, and it was a healthy culture that received it. He says the sick, it made even sicker. Whenever a culture was disintegrating, whatever the tension between it and its individual components was slack, philosophy could never reintegrate the individual back into the group. Whenever an individual was of a mind to stand apart, to draw a circle of self-sufficiency about him, philosophy was ready to isolate him still further, finally to destroy him through that isolation. Philosophy is dangerous whenever it does not exist in its fullest right, and it is only the health of a culture, and not every culture at that, which accords which accords it its fullest right. So basically, the philosopher becomes very sick if the, the culture isn't healthy and ready to reintegrate itself to minds that set itself apart, and that a philosopher could become very sick if the culture is not ready to receive him. Maybe that's why I'm alone in my apartment recording these episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says that the Greeks engaged in philosophy more than any other culture, and I guess I suppose that seems perfectly self-explanatory considering that it was the Greeks that were the first people to sort of integrate the philosophical method into all of its culture, into its schooling, and throughout the city. That it was sort of the achievement of the Greeks to fully integrate philosophy as a way of life. For the Greeks, he says there is an insatiable thirst for knowledge, that there was always neighbors upon neighbors engaging with each other in order to raise each other up higher, to continually connect and communicate with people on a more original level, to go through what is learned, to teach what has been taught, and to transmit knowledge with ferocity. There was a lack of conceit between each other. There was more of a selfless connection to developing and understanding the foundations, the archetypes of philosophical thought, the underlying truths, the causes, the purification of the senses of what is being discussed, and that be that in the end they became more fundamentally together but also in the process were inventors. He says that all other cultures are put to shame by the marvelous, marvelously idealized philosophical company represented by the ancient Greek masters Thales, Anaximander, Heraclitus, Parmenides, Anaxagoras, Empedocles, Docles, Democritus, and Socrates. He says they are devoid of conventionality, for in their day there was no philosophic or academic professionalism. All of them, in magnificent solitude, were the only ones in their time whose lives were devoted to insight alone. They all possessed that virtuous energy of the ancients, herein excelling all men since, which led them to find their own individual form and to develop it through all its metamorphosis to its subtlest and greatest possibilities, for there was no convention to meet them halfway. Thus all of them together form what Schopenhauer, in contrast to the Republic of Scholars, has called the Republic of Creative Minds, each giant calling to his brother through the desolate intervals of time, and undisturbed by the wanton noises of the dwarfs that creep past beneath them, their high spirit converse continues. He says, the philosopher is a chance wanderer, lonely in a totally hostile environment, which he either creeps past or attacks with clenched fist. He glorifies Greek culture. He goes on to say something about that the Greeks knew what life was worth all along because they had a unified vision of what a culture is supposed to be, while more in the West that there is a confusion that we have, that we pine after freedom, beauty, leisure, power, and then on the other hand we go, okay, well, what is truth? What is the what is the answer to, to life? And that what is life worth? After all, what are we, are, are we supposed to value something in particular? And we get caught between our left hand doing one thing while our rights doing another sort of thing and that the philosopher as a wanderer of sorts or an, an alienated one in a culture that's lost 
for it's the philosophical mind, the one that is able to unify all parts of life together, is the one that is supposed to be rallied behind because they are the unifiers of a genuine culture. They are what Nietzsche is referring to as this culture that had it right, this culture that saw a full view of existence looking at itself, and that was a culture that continuously and repetitiously imbued itself with reflecting on what it was encountering, and then everyone was in on it. It was a cultural conception. It wasn't this pining after one value system or another and then looking back and being like, well, what what should we value and where's the truth and all this without unifying them all together in a synthesis, highly attuned orchestra of ideas and forms and mentations and archetypes of life coming together to inform ourselves on who we are collectively and as individuals. He describes philosophers outside of the Greek culture as being comets passing by, terrorizing people, and being incalculable, and being simply wanderers, and that it's only within the, the Greek culture that it is justified, and that among them, they are not these, these magnificent stellar objects flying in. He cites Anaximander of Miletus by saying, Where the source of things is, to that place they must also pass away, according to necessity, for they must pay penance and be judged for their injustices in accordance with the ordinance of time. He references that quote from Anaximander with Perurga of Paralipomenia by saying, The proper measure with which to judge any and all human beings is that they are really creatures who should not exist at all, and who are doing penance for their lives by their manifold sufferings and their death. What could we expect of such creatures? Are we not all sinners under sentence of death? We do penance for having been born, first by living and then by dying. Any quality that can be posited to be something will be what it isn't eventually, that there are no definite qualities in existence, and that which truly is, an examiner concludes, cannot possess definite characteristics, or it would come to be and pass away like all other things. In order that coming to be shall not cease, primal being must be indefinite. The immortality and everlastingness of primal being does not lie in its infinitude or its inexhaustibility, as the commentators of Anaximander generally assume, but in the fact that it is devoid of definite qualities that would lead to its passing, its name, the indefinite. In defiance of this sort of coming into being and having to go away, there is this fight for evermore being. There is this recurrence of having to come into be continuously and be destroyed, and then also bring other things to be so that they may continually be. That there is a continuous being set up against non-being. There's a defiance of this, the, the ceaseless onslaught non-stagnation, this opposing factor to what is, this degeneration of generation, the hot turning to cold, and vice versa. Everything forever has its opposite with it, that within a sphere of injustice, there is a contradiction of, of justice, of a re-emergence of that which brings into being the balance, that there are lawfulness, and then there are failings of lawfulness, there are transgressions on everything. On any judgment, there is a coming into being, and a justification, and a going out. There is disorderness and contradiction, and there is guilt, penance, judgment. How could this world be the execution arena for all that is condemned? Heraclitus says that he denied the duality of totally diverse worlds, and that reality is necessary through the actions that it takes. 
and that its undulation between what it is and the other part that creates what it is is the necessity that the counterpart must exist, that we are both sides of everything, that we wouldn't know anything at all without its other side undulating on the other part, that there wouldn't be some other part existing there that creates the other part, and that you are essentially both parts, but only one at a time in the myopia, myopia for which we stand. But we are all the forces, and coming to be within those forces, we are all those forces, but they are always coming to be, and we are coming to be what they are in whatever arena, arena we are at. We are learning to be ourselves through the continual progression of the actions of what there is, and it is always the same across all the different variations of action, but we are all in essence acting, that we are acting eternally through the mode of creating a sense of, of good, a sense of not good, that which is, is, that which is not, is not. In terms of doing what is right, there is a sense of doing what isn't right. There is a repercussion for doing something unjust. There's no escaping the vacuum of actions, that there is a natural tendency to abide by that which is, and if to not abide, you're forsaking that which is, and it will come around and will get back at you, or there'll be that force on the other side of that that is directly connected to it. He describes it as the phys physics of polarity, that in one instance there will be an equal and opposite existence of another resisting end at war and at strife with each other, and that it's always seeking to meet back into the middle of things, and that it's eternally and consistently wrestling with each other, changing positions. And in according to the relative nature of things, Heraclitus thought that the gradation of things experienced by the senses, like hot and cold, is that everything in physics tends towards heating up, that the temperature is, in essence, a firing up of physics, and that everything is fire, that the, the various amount of matter that exists is itself because of the way in which its physics are firing, or that matter in some sense has a temperature due to the firing up of its nature, that whatever produces heat within it causes the nature of its being, the kind of being it is, and that things that are more cold, or things that can be described as cold, is a language factor, and that is a separation from what is to what isn't. But he, Heraclitus doesn't see it that way. He sees cold things as being a relative mode of being warm in a different mode, that it is warm in some other sense, and that being hot is being cool in another sense, that relative to whatever we're talking about and its natures, that something is still warmth and still essentially fire, or is a coming to be into fire, that the real existence is forever becoming a fire, I suppose, but what about ice? Isn't that something? Or that water is this sort of uh, transition state back into the state in which it, which it, it's supposed to be? or that which it is, it turns into fire because everything is going away and being burned out by fire, that everything changes and reconstructs itself with the tempering mode of temperature, that things reintegrate into itself and change through the procession of temperatures elevating, and that, I guess it's, you know, only up from wherever you're, you're going, that the earth eventually is, is broken down and that water tends to rise up and be charged back down to the earth where fire is made and matter is transformed and destroyed and, and brought back up to earth 
and the rock cycle and then the, the lander roads and the water and the water goes up and the, who knows what he was thinking but his rock his geology and, and the rock cycles weren't it wasn't a complete study back then i suppose but that was sort of his ideal he was wondering about whether that there is injustice and do guilt and the contradiction and the suffering in the world does that exist or is it one continuum of the same types of things only on a different end of the spectrum he says but only for a limited human mind which sees things apart but are not connected, not for the contuitive God. For him, all contradictions run into harmony, invisible to the common human eye, yet understandable to one who, like Heraclitus, is related to the contemplative God before his fire gaze. Not a drop of injustice remains in the world poured all over him, even that cardinal impulse that allows pure fire to inhabit such impure forms is mastered by him with a sublime metaphor. So it's almost as if he's this play artist exhibiting all these forces in the world that are playing that they're not and switching back and forth between roles and that the structure is the structuring and the going away in all things. Wow, that's quite eloquent. But is this kind of uh, situation, he wonders, a sort of hubris in that there is this charge of guilt against that which is hubris from the individual standing apart from the massive and what is common towards everyone. Although it is rather virtuous for philosophy to be very concise with its terms and to break things down in a very certain, clear, and simplifying kind of way, Heraclitus was rather obscure in the way in which he describes his ontological views that everything is fire. Now, if you ask Heraclitus why are some things not fire, it would be, well, it's just fire playing around. It'll get back to fire because that's what everything wants or something like that. And I guess it's since when you're back in the day, I guess it's hard to come up with a physical science approach to describing those things. I'm sure, you know, something about physics, there is that tendency, that sort of action activity that can be described in that way. In parallel, in simple terms, um, Heraclitus's point of view is not articulate in that matter, but I'm sure it can be articulated and seen in a certain way that might run alongside his intuitions. And that's maybe one of the reasons why he writes so obscurely is because it's not always the task of a philosopher to be like, I know what I'm talking about. And I think that was part of his uh, his hubris is like, look, I'm awesome because I'm not going to just tell you that I know stuff. I'm just going to tell you what I what I think, you know, and it's, I'm just going to pass it off as, as my sense and knowledge of existence, which I think is pretty cool. Well, that was that. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I'll talk to you later.